During the message yesterday, during the memorial service that we have, as I mentioned to you, and I will at least mention this scripture again, Martha comes to Jesus. Lazarus had died. They had called for Jesus four days earlier when Lazarus was very sick. And Jesus purposely stays behind. And then after four days, he says to the disciples, the apostles, let's go to Lazarus because our friend Lazarus is sleeping. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, that's a good sign. And Jesus said, no, he's dead. And I'm glad, he says, for your sake, that I wasn't there to the intent that you may believe. But believe what? Jesus both was and is more than just a mystic in touch with the consciousness of the universe. By the way, this is a phrase I'm hearing more and more often from people. It's the way the universe is speaking to you. I think to myself, since the universe is largely material, how in the world do people think the universe is speaking to them? But they don't mention God. And this is supposed to be the new erudite, sophisticated way of looking at life. The universe is giving you a message. Well, the universe does give a message to the glory of God, creator. That's the message of the universe. Anyway, you know, we live in a time where we can see our signs, as I mentioned so frequently, the things that Jesus, the apostles, the Old Testament prophets spoke about that would precede the coming of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes along and he says, I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sake, to the intent that you may believe. Believe what? That's the question. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 3. There's just two verses of scripture I want to read to you for the introduction. So Moses is being called by God to fulfill the promise that even though Israel would be slaves in a nation, foreign nation, for 400 years, that God would set them free, bring them out, and bring them to what we know as the promised land. And so Moses is being called, and like many prophets, let me use the word ministers, like many ministers who are in touch with reality, and ministry, I think you have to actually be in ministry for a while to say, I never thought it was going to be like this. But Moses is aware, as Jeremiah was and several others, he's aware of what he's being called to do, and he's reluctant. He's not all that enthused. In any case, he gave God some excuses as to why he couldn't and whatever. But here he asks a question, and that goes to what I was mentioning in John chapter 11, that Jesus says, I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sake, to the intent that you may believe. And the question is, believe what? So at verse 13, in Exodus chapter 3, the Bible says, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. And then he answers the question here, This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. The question is asked, what shall I say is your name? And he says, tell them I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you to them. And this is my name at verse 15 forever. 
And this is my memorial unto all generations I am. Now, what was God communicating here? I mean, we have names of God in the Bible. He's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will see and the Lord will provide. He's Jehovah Nissi. He's the Lord, our banner. He's the one we rally around as armies do. He's Jehovah Shalom. He's the Lord. He's our peace. As I mentioned in my prayer for communion, God told Abraham, he said, I'm your shield and I'm your exceeding grace. It's me. I'm your reward. I don't know that I've heard too much of this being preached lately in America, that the greatest reward of life is God himself. Not money, not prestige. I don't even know what success is. That really depends on who's talking about success. You know what? Let me tell you what I think about success apart from knowing God. If you can get up every morning and go to work and make a living, if you're married and you have children and you can take care of your wife and your children, I think that that takes more courage than most acts of courage that we read about. Realize, like, for instance, in the giving of the Medal of Honor, not that these men and women who have received it, but it's mostly men that have received it don't deserve it. I'm not saying that, and not that we don't honor them. I'm not saying that either. I'm just simply saying that they find themselves in a predicament. They don't create it. They just, they're in a predicament. And so they do what comes naturally, intuitively, and they do these things, and sometimes they may be killed in action, sometimes they survive, and you get this prestigious medal, the Medal of Honor. But in my view, and I'm overstating the case, but in my view, that's easier than getting up every day and going to work. And not that these Medal of Honor winners don't, I'm just saying that to me, real courage is having to go up every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and just do your duty, just do your job. Sometimes we look for heroes in places that are extraordinary, rather than looking for the everyday heroes that are out there. Well, here, Moses is reluctant to take on this task. We, again, we have a view that to be called to the ministry is just real glorious, but it's not. It's not glorious. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot of work, a lot of toil, a lot of frustrations. Oh, yes, there's rewards, certainly. But honestly, they come fewer and further in between just the work, the everyday work, which few, if any, get to really see it. Moses is reluctant because he knows what he's being called to do. And again, we may, I'll use the word fantasize, about being Moses, you know, or someone like him. But true ministry is really rough business. I never recommend to anybody go into ministry. Because I also believe that they're truly called as Moses was. You can't avoid it. Jonah tried to avoid the ministry. That didn't work out well. Others have tried to avoid the ministry, and God says, no, no, Jeremiah was one. I'm too young. Moses said, I can't speak. God says, listen, don't tell me that you can't speak. I made your mouth. All right, I'll let Aaron do the talking, but you be the spokesperson for me to Aaron who will have the eloquence. Jeremiah says, I'm just a kid. See, they had a real picture of ministry. And today, and maybe throughout the ages, We often embellish, somewhat adulterate, the idea of true ministry, that it's something, you know, really glorious. But in the flesh, it's not. It's really not. It's just a ton of work. For all your efforts, in the end, you may actually be betrayed by the people that you minister to, disliked and rejected by the people you minister to. That was the Apostle Paul. The very churches that he started rejected him after a while. You see, because some of the other speakers that came in, they were more eloquent. The Apostle Paul, by historical reference, evidently was not a very tall man. And we know that he spoke a lot. I just read that this morning because he spoke so long in one case that a young man fell asleep and fell out the window. 
And then he wrote letters that we have in the New Testament here, some of them. And, uh, you know, they said, well, his letters are really, you know, profound and weighty, but his presence is really weak. I mean, we have these other speakers that come in, they're dynamic, histrionic. That was Paul, that was the real genius. So ministry is not what most people think. And when we have people who represent it in such a fashion as being some glorious thing, it's not. And Moses knew that. So he gives a few reasons why. What do I say? What is your name? And God answers him. Remember, the bush is burning, but it's not consumed. That's what got Moses' attention. That doesn't happen. That's not natural. So he goes to see what's going on. And that's when God speaks to him. Moses, Moses. And he gets his commission. And he says, now, Lord, if I go into Egypt, there's a powerful nation. And they've got a million plus or whatever the exact number was. No one knows. Of your people. And I'm supposed to go to Pharaoh and tell them, let them go? What is your name? What should I tell them is your name? And here, God answers him, and he says to him, I am that I am. So my question is this. What was God trying to communicate here? He could have used Jehovah Nisi. He could have used Jehovah Shalom. He could have used a lot of names. But what he speaks here is, in essence, this. He says, there really isn't any name that can describe the essence of my being. There really isn't any. Okay, we call him Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will see and the Lord will provide. So we know him as provider. But that's just one part. And then we know him as a God of grace, and that's a part, and mercy. And he's also a God of judgment and justice, and on and on and on and on. So what God is saying here to Moses, in essence, is that there really isn't any one name that can give you the perception of who I am. So he says here, I will be what I will be. He's the ever-present God. He's God now. He was God yesterday. He'll be God tomorrow. And then we go outside of time, which is the only thing that we can relate to at the moment. And he was God before time began. And he'll be God after time is consumed and after it ends. He's God. He's always been God. And there really isn't, again, this is the essence of what's being said here, apparently. There isn't really any one name that can describe the nature of God. He's everything. Now, I've told you this before. And I would like to mention it again now. I'm grateful to God for this. I've come to an understanding of this truth. God is executing his plan, his. He didn't do it in a caucus. He didn't get some of his best people around and says, okay, how are we going to execute? What's the plan? God informed us from the beginning, this is the plan. He also informs us, there will be no talking about the plan. You join it or you don't, because I will execute my will. Whatever I have spoken, it's going to stand fast, just like creation. We weren't there. Now, of course, some say that we were, you know, swimming around in the primordial pools as tadpoles. But we weren't there. God didn't take us into his counsel. God didn't ask us for advice. He created the world, the universe, stars, and so on, all the creatures of the sea, of the land. Then he created man. He created you, and he created me in his own image for his purpose. We see this throughout the scriptures. Though we are part of that, and this is a great thing. And I've told you over the years that when God instructs us to do something, it's not for his benefit. Yet the creation, arguably, is for his benefit. The angels worship him and sound out one of his essential aspects of his nature, holy, holy, holy. But God created you and God created me in his own image. And here's the thing, you know, so that he could have fellowship. He didn't ask our advice. How should we go about this? How should we do this? God is executing a plan that he initiated before there was creation. 
And it's for his good pleasure that he created you and he created me for his pleasure. And so when we come to this, this truth, it brings an incredible comfort. Look at Moses. He is by far my favorite figure in the Bible when it comes to the pastorate. But Moses doesn't want to be, I'm going to use the word pastor. Moses doesn't want to be a pastor. I can't speak. We have far too many people. They want to be a pastor. And that is a very naive understanding of what it means. I have not yet met the person, there's some out there, but I've not met them who says, you know, I've suffered quite a lot and I want to suffer more in the future. And if you're going to talk to someone, some young person perhaps, and they say, I want to go in the ministry, just ask them, how much pain can you absorb? How much suffering can you take? How much betrayal? How many criticisms and so on? Because that's what real ministry is all about. The cost is very, very high. And Moses knew that. Anyway, he says to God, he says, you know, what is your name? And again, God could have used any of the appellations that we use and that he puts in his own book. Let me say it this way. When God says, I will be what I will be, I am that I am. When we have a need for anything, he's the Lord that sees and the Lord that provides. When we are disturbed and we don't really know precisely what's going on, but if you keep the overall plan in mind, then you have the picture, but we don't know the details and we're disturbed, then he becomes our peace. When we're sick, he's our healer, Jehovah Rapha. And then we go down a list of all the things that we can think of. He will be what he will be when we need him to be that. In his nature, he is that already. I like this thought that came to me once during a prayer meeting, just dawned on me that I'm in this day. I'm confined to this day. I gotta wait for each minute to pass by and God is already in tomorrow. I mean, he's already there. I wanna just say to you that I don't understand all of this, how it operates. I mean, I have ideas and ways to picture it, but I'm here, you're here, we're confined minute by minute, second by second. We have to wait for this to pass see what goes on, what unfolds, and God is already in tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. In the mind of God, this work is already complete. So when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, he means it is completed. But that work, we know when we read a little further in the New Testament, that work was completed before the world had a foundation. Now this is what Fanny Crosby wrote about, blessed assurance. And so I always advise you, don't get all twisted about what you're saying. I mean, do your duty. We have to do what is responsible. All right, we got to do that. I'm not advocating passivity or fatalism or determinism. But I am definitely saying, don't get all twisted about these things. Let me share something with you. I brought my little email thing out here because I want to share something that, quite frankly, does have me twisted. Now, this is an email I get maybe, I don't know what it is, it's a lot every day. And the regarding box says, this must be a mistake. Friend, President Trump reached out to you and you ignored him and ignored is in capital letters. What happened? Now, I really wish there would be somebody on the end of this so I could respond. That's my temptation. <laughs> he reached out to me? You mean if wherever he is right now, if I walked up, he said, oh, it's Pastor Ray. <laughs> Then it goes on about the fundraising. And this is about the 15th or 20th time I've gotten this message. We won't do this again. If you miss out now for me to give them my money, if you miss out now, you may never get this opportunity again. <laughs> Trump reached out to you. And I had to research this, that I've gotten this exact same email a week or so back. Now, 
you know that I voted for President Trump twice. But I take issue with manipulation. I don't care who's trying to manipulate me. I take issue with this. This is dishonest. This is manipulative. And forgive me for being a bit you know, vulgar when I say this. What moron would actually believe this? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to ignore him. <laughs> Look, for me, you know, you say, well, what are you going to do in the next election? Politics are politics. But that's an insult not only to your intelligence, but to your integrity. Both. What happened? <laughs> Nothing happened. I saw the email and I swiped it. Simple. Again, I'm saying this to you because we came through a period, are we still in it? I don't know. We were looking to a man to be the savior. And I'm being very clear about this. I'm not looking to any man to be the savior. I'm not. Once we do that, we become idolaters. Now in America, we have to vote and we should vote and it's our responsibility to vote. I did a thing, a couple of things this last few weeks. And I put a headline about Kyle Rittenhouse. It was to offer some commentary, but always to bridge it back over. This is on my show, The Oasis, for anxiety and depression, to get people out of this hysteria that the media whips up. Somebody with a Christian logo saw the broadcast and was saying to me, so are you for Kyle or are you against him? This is a Christian social media platform. So I never answered it. What am I supposed to say? So now he's been found innocent just by a court of law, and I follow up in the papers. I'm not on the jury. I don't know what all the situation really is. And so to this morning, I get a response from the same, it's not an organization, I think it's just a young girl. And she says, well, thanks for your reply. Kyle is innocent, and he had the, the clapping hands <clears throat> emoji. And I said, you know, what's wrong with people? I'm a preacher. I'm not preaching Donald Trump. Well, I'm certainly not preaching the other guy either. I've never been confident in politics, and only for one reason, because they're men. Men and women, yeah, all of them. Flesh and blood. If you are going to place your trust in flesh, you're going to be radically, not only disappointed, but misled. There's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. I politically am a conservative. I'm still a conservative. not quitting that. But I think for myself... And when I get emails like this, and I understand it's an organization that people use, and then there's other ones too I get. (laughs) Like I told you about the football, same group of people. President Trump has a football for you signed by Herschel Walker. Now again, if there was somebody I can call, I said, I want it. It's my football. You just told me it's my football. I want that football at my door. But you all got it. (laughs) So whose football is it? Come on, man, this is manipulation. And you see, Satan is clever enough. If we don't bite on that, which is flesh and blood, then we bite on that, and it's still flesh and blood. And the flesh is the flesh, is the flesh, is the flesh. God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And again, I want to make myself clear on this. I am an American. I am concerned about our country, but I am, in fact, on this one thing. America needs Jesus. America needs a third great awakening. America needs to return to the Bible, to the Word of God, so that we can have I am that I am ruling over our lives. This is the time we live in. These are the days the prophets spoke about, the apostles spoke about, the disciples. These are the days that Jesus spoke about. And for me, in 44 years of ministry, I have never seen a time that has so much evidence, but this is that time. This is the time to press in. But let me give you another phenomenon. 
You know that I've accented over the years one aspect of biblical prophecy in the subject of eschatology, the great falling away, falling away from Christ. More than likely for most of you, more than likely, the devil will not get you or your sin nature to do something really gross, really violating one of the Ten Commandments, more than likely, although that's happening too. But it's always those subtle things. As we read in Genesis that Satan, the serpent, was more subtle. It's those subtleties. And I say this with great respect to so many of you that I pastor. But in the last couple of months, I'm getting more and more correspondence of why I can't get to church. And I understand that we're up against it. And I just I want to communicate real clearly that if you think that you're stressed, I told somebody just recently, I wish you could be in my mind for a day. You'd be happy to go back to your own problems. And we're all up against it. And that's my point. We're all up against it. But if there was ever a time to keep the Sabbath day holy, this is that day. When people get sick, all right, you're on vacation. Those things happen. But what I'm watching is the devil trying to disconnect us. Right, so that we're not in one place, but I'm praying for you, which is good. Pray for one another. Pray for me. Wherever you are, that's greatly appreciated. But the scriptures are clear. Come to this place here. Come to one place and don't forsake it. But see, what we do, and we do this with life in general, why can't I lose weight? Well, you know, it's my glands. I have a gland problem. <laughs> yeah, you got a gland problem. It's in that ham and cheese sandwich. <laughs> Yeah, you got a gland problem. Why can't I exercise? Well, you know, that's an excuse. I mean, even in the world, they understand that there's a difference between truly unable to do something and excuses. We do not want to be found in this category just simply, oh, life is hectic. Seriously? Life is hectic? I'm telling you, if I was to tell you how my life goes and my wife's life goes, I don't know that you'd believe it. We've just gotten used to it. But I'm determined, I'm speaking for myself now, I'm determined that no matter what, I will be at the place where I'm supposed to be, by God's word, at my appointed rounds. That I will be there. See, we live in a time when the enemy cannot get you to outright sin against God. Again, violate the Ten Commandments, you know, whatever. Although arguably we're constantly, habitually violating the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Many great theologians throughout the ages have affirmed, the great theologians have affirmed that that is still not only a creation principle, but it is still part of the moral law and it is intact. And you could do that research for yourself. Look up the great theologians from Jonathan Edwards to Thomas Aquinas. Look at it and see how they came up with this. That is still part of the moral law. But we covered that a couple of weeks back. And I guess it gets down to this. In the end, who shall be found standing in Christ? Who's going to be off on some very deleterious rabbit trail chasing flesh? He'll save us because that's exactly what's going to happen with the Antichrist. You see, when he comes along, he's not going to have horns and a pitchfork. He's going to be a very engaging individual, very pleasant. Jesus said, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Smooth talker, smart, very smart. And an expert in so many areas of life, including military, government, economics. People are going to say, this is what we need. Let me confine it to America. This is what America needs. I was looking up, and I was surprised, but I want to let you know. I was looking up and just reviewing last night the precepts and tenets of Scientology. And as I'm reading that, I said to myself, man, the Bible does have difficult portions. God becoming a man certainly would be one of them. But man, not as fantastic as this. Have you ever read it? No. Well, I don't know if you want to, but it's interesting. You have everyone from Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman. I'm just trying to think of a few of the names. 
And then you have some of these, I won't go through their names now, you can look it up for yourself. Some of these people that you're watching on your news. Remember that L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer. That's the first clue. They believe that aliens came here years ago and they all have names and who was the leader and he set them up by volcanoes and they blew them all up with thermonuclear war and on and on and on through these convoluted explanations of what happened in the past. And I say some of these really bright people believe that. Now, they could argue the same thing when you come through these difficult passages here. I get it. But this book's been tested. This book has been tried. Amen. This book has been found to be true. And here we have one, and that's only been since 1954, so that's the year I was born. So it's not all that old. And you have some of the brighter minds in our country and maybe around the world who are advocating this, and it became a religion. Scientology became a religion after they were sued and brought to court for other things. They said, well, we're actually a religion, and they come under that protection that we have in our country. The incredible deception that people are under right now, we have been warned against that. Remember, Jesus answered the question when he was asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? And the first thing that Jesus says is, take heed that no man deceive you. Now, if you are a red-blooded American and you say, no one's deceiving me, okay. But what if you are the person that deceived you? What if you are your own false teacher? They say, what are you saying? I'm saying that we have an imagination. The faculties of man is part of it along with intellect and reason, emotions, and imagination. And I'm reading, because I read theology a lot, right? I'm reading the incredible newer, which is not really new, interpretations of scripture and all of this stuff. And I say to myself, dear Lord, how could the average person get through all of this? I'm experienced. I have known whom I've believed. I'm confident and so forth. How is the average person? It's getting lost. But if we're not able to know I am that I am, that God is working out a plan, that God is insistent that he's going to work out that plan, declaring the end from the beginning. This is how it's going to end. This is how it began. I'm doing it. And he gives us the option, so to speak, the choice. For me, I'm glad. No, I'm more than glad. God, early in my life, began to speak to me. And I will give you one instance. I am not one of those persons that's going to come along every day, throughout the day, saying, God said this, God said that, God said this, God said that. But I do believe that God still speaks to his people. Through the book, yes, absolutely, but I still believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. It was many years ago, while I was here in this city, when I first got here, a couple of years after I first got here, so I'm going back about 30 years, I had a dream. In the dream, I was looking down, and there was sand, there was a seashore. I was looking down at the seashore, and I heard this great voice speak and say, I am. Then my head was lifted up and I was looking out over the horizon of an ocean. And I heard the voice again say, I am. Then my head was lifted up and I saw the great and somewhat intimidating expanse of the universe. And then the voice augmented and said, I am. Lately, some of these dreams I had many years ago, 30, sometimes as long as 40 years ago, starting to come back to me. Another one is when God writes in the book, he says, I have shaken the heavens and I've shaken the earth and I will do it again. Well, that was something that came to me as a young Christian. And everything that can be shaken is going to be shook. Yes. Yes. And only that which is planted by God, only that which has roots in God is going to remain. It's not enough to say, well, I've got a lamp. Jesus said, is there oil in your lamp? Is it burning? 
Is it burning today? He said, well, years ago, I was such an on-fire Christian. That was years ago. That's like saying a couple years back, I was breathing. Are you breathing now? What happened yesterday is gone. It's water over the dam. What are you now? Well, you say, I've had a rough life. Is there anybody in here that says, no, I've not had a rough life? Anybody? Anybody want to say, hey, my life's been really easy. When you ask people about a rough life, you know, people trade stories, and everybody agrees that life is tough. Okay, so what is the excuse for no oil in the lamp? Oh, this, oh, that. No, no, no. See, God says no. No. I've given you grace. I've given you more grace. I've given you my word. And then we have angels, right, as bodyguards and protectors and all these things. So that we are, as it says in the first chapter of Romans, without excuse. We are not an exception to the general rule that God is executing a plan, as we see here in the days of Moses and the children of Israel, and that was part of that plan. And God was going to execute it. Who shall I say has sent me? What is your name? And God says, I'm just dramatizing this. God says, I have many, many names, but none of them can truly describe the essence of who I am. There are no words in any language. So just simply say, I am. I am. It's awesome. It's awesome to be connected, in a manner of speaking, to the great I am. As I mentioned earlier and yesterday at the memorial service, when you die, you're still alive. And in a much better state than down here. And as I mentioned yesterday also, as the Apostle Paul said, you know, he said, I'm caught between two things. To depart and be with the Lord is far better. However, to stay and be with you is better for you. So I think I'll stay around a while. That's what Paul said. You know, at this stage of my life, after so many years or whatever, I feel the same way. But to depart and be with the Lord means I'm all done. But it's better for you. For my children, for my grandchildren that I stick around, between the grace of God and having an Irish upbringing and ethnicity, I think I'll stay around and fight. There's a fight going on. I want to be in it. I'm already in it. And you say, I don't want to fight. Ooh, that's bad. Because you're going to learn what we learned growing up in some of the neighborhoods that we grew up in, that you either fight or you run. And if you run, you run every single day. Hey, give me your lunch money. Hey, give me this. Give me that. Did I tell you about the story of a guy I knew? He was a bully. He had a habit of every day. uh, I can't really go into exactly what he did. I mean, I remember what he did. I just can't tell you publicly. But he had a habit of really hurting me every morning. One day I get up and I said, this is the last day. This is not going to happen today. Not going to happen. And I came into the schoolyard and there he was just waiting for me because he was allowed I allowed him to bully me every single day. And as soon as he started to approach, I took off my watch. That's what you did back in the old days. Took off your watch. My friend, I still remember his name, Anthony. I said, hold my watch. So don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. I said, hold my watch. Whap, whap, just like you see in the old Batman show. Pow, zoom, pow, boom, boom. And, you know, a discharge came from his nose, and he begged me to stop. Basically, I told him in certain words that I also can't use. I said, never again. You put your hands on me. Never. And you know what? He never did. Do you remember the scripture? He said, oh, the tough times we're living in. They are tough times. Yeah, we're all having a tough time. But do you remember the scripture? It says, greater is he 
that is in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So I'm just saying to you, you say, oh, look at the world has become a tough neighborhood. And you say, well, I just don't want to fight. Well, then it's bad news because you're going to have to run and you're going to have to hide and you're going to have to have panic attacks and anxiety attacks and some measure of depression. Or you're going to stand up in Jesus' name to the bully that we know is Satan or this world and whatever say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to be bullied on social media. I'm not going to be bullied for my beliefs. I'm not going to be bullied for the things that I've said. I'm not going to be bullied by people that I've supported. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so here we go. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Let me illustrate what Christ in you would look like. We were in Hawaii years ago, my wife and I, and down the street came Elvis Presley. So we're looking at each other, and this is Elvis Presley. He's got the black sideburns, the hair, and something on, not a jumpsuit, but something on that was very adorned, the glasses, the whole thing. I mean, the guy really looked like him. And I think to myself, after all these years, that persona is still active in people who want to look and act like Elvis Presley. It may be a silly illustration to you, but in my mind it works because, look, let me say it this way. When you saw this man walking towards you, you didn't have to guess. Like, who are you trying to impersonate? I mean, right away you knew. And that's, I believe, an illustration of what it means to have Christ in you. That people should know right away. They may register as a strange religious guy or... You know him, you know the way he is. Oh, you know him. But greater is he that is in us means that we start to reflect the nature of Christ. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So let me say this to you. As a man who grew up in some rough neighborhoods, who made a choice early on that I'm not going to run for the rest of my life, but the fight. And I'm still fighting. I would advise you to stop making excuses because I understand that life is rough and not diminishing your pain, your suffering. But that's the way it is. And now you're going to have to stand up and say, no matter what, I'll be found at my post. I'll be doing my duty when I'm supposed to. And there won't be one excuse I'm ever going to make that will keep me from doing my duty. And again, there's always the exceptions to sickness or whatever. I wasn't here last week myself. Okay, those are exceptions. We must take the scriptures to heart. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that here, I am that I am. The eternal nature of God has now been deposited inside of us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So how does this connect? Let's look at a few scriptures. I'm going to open up my Bible here, this big Bible that I have. And I want you to come with me to John chapter 8, verse 12. We'll look at a few scriptures to see how this connects. Jesus forgives a woman caught in the very act of adultery by the leaders. What should we do, Lord? What should we do? Moses' law says stoner. Jesus never said that that wasn't true. He just wrote on the ground whatever he wrote, but it's always been supposed that he wrote thief, liar, and other things. And the elders, one by one, if you look at chapter 8 over here in the earlier verses, they begin to put the stones down. And let me tell you something. That's the evidence of you being saved. If you've come into church, including this one, to throw stones at me and everybody else, you don't have the concept. You don't have the truth. The truth is you're so convicted by your own conscience of sin that you put the stones down and you leave. 
I mean, you leave off the accusation <gasps> and you pray and whatever. With that in mind, Jesus in verse 11 said, after he asked, where are your accusers? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He didn't say, I give light. My precepts are light. My principles are light. He says, I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. It's gone beyond the sun and the moon and the stars and all that. He says, I'm the light. I created those lights. And I'm the light. I am that I am. These are all the great I am's. Come with me to John chapter 14. Look at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. I don't know, but if you listen to people speak as I do, and all the problems that we have, legitimate problems, and they talk as if it's fatalistic. And I exhort people, just look above. Look at God. He's executing a plan. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way. And let me put this in there because it's obviously implied with the way the sentence is phrased grammatically. I am the way. I am the truth. I am life. I don't have life. I am life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. I'm life. I am that I am. Turn back to John chapter 10. Look at verse 7 and verse 8, then verse 9. Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. And we had these verses just a few weeks ago. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. And this is speaking in the religious community, the spiritual community, what have you. But the sheep did not hear them. And why is that? Because the scriptures say they shall all be taught of the Father. So Jesus takes that scripture and says, that's why no one can come to me except the Father send them. Hmm. God is executing a plan, and we're part of it. You know, a small part of it, but we're a part of it. We're part of a plan. I am the door, again in verse 9. I am the door. By me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. What does that mean? Rest. So we say, oh, rest. I need a rest. Anybody here today doesn't need a rest? <laughs> Anybody? Well, here's the way we think of it. And I like to take time off. I don't take a whole lot of time off, but I think in the future I may need to take more. In any case, Jesus designed to give us rest right here, right now, yeah. in our circumstances. And why? Because I am that I am is working out a plan. If you say, well, I don't like the plan, what you're saying to God is that, look at, I don't like the way you wrote the book. Well, the book is written, so that's that. Turmoil and chaos and nations against nations and wars and rumors of wars and manipulation and on and on and on. But Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. He says, I am the door. And if you come in through me, you will find pasture. What are you worried about today? We all have something that's on our minds, something troubling us, something we have to address perhaps. And some things you don't have to address. But the thing that I want to ask you is this. And this is a great, let me call it a secret, if you could find it. If you could understand it. At any moment, no matter what it may be, you could put any thought into your mind that you choose. An evil thought, a good thought, an imagination, anything. You can control any thought that comes into your mind. And you can take a bad thought and replace it with a good thought and so on and so on. That's one of the greatest things I've learned in life. I don't have to think on one thing or the other. I can think on anything I want. And every human being can. 
So when I'm looking at the chaos that's in front of me, and believe me, I deal with it a lot. It's just chaotic. I look up. So God, I don't understand it all, but I do understand the great plan that you've been executing since man fell in the garden, and even before that, before you created us, and that what's going to go on into eternity, I understand it. And that's the thing. That's, we'll say, we'll call it a thought. And you put that thought into your mind, and all of a sudden you're able to deal with the chaos, and you're able to deal with all of these things better. Because Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Let's go over to John chapter 10 at verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known of mine. I want to make a commentary here. It's interesting to me, and I don't think it's a mistake either. When people in the political realm are trying to get your attention, and I've seen this this week. Are you just a sheep? You know what my answer is? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Not me. That's an unfortunate statement. You better think it through if you're professing Christ, because Christ says you are a sheep. You're like sheep. Oh, we like sheep. The whole time throughout the book, Old and New Testaments, God refers to his people as sheep. And now through clever subterfuge in the political realm with Christians, they're saying, I'm no sheep. I don't think they realize what they're saying. We are sheep. We are depending on the good shepherd who's leading us. He leadeth me, right? The old hymn, he leadeth me. We're not tugging on Jesus' garment and saying, we're not going there today, Jesus. We're going here. We voted. We're going this way. God is not our errand boy. God is the great I am. I am that I am. Executing a plan throughout the ages of which we are a part. So I would counsel you. I know someone's going to say to me, well, you know, I'm just talking about politics. Yeah, okay. If you're a Christian, I think I'd stick with the book. Because you are a sheep. Or like a sheep. I've had messages on this, you know. Get a copy of Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And see all the trouble sheep can get themselves into. Like casting. They fall in the water. The sheep are fluffy. We're fluffy. <laughs> Sheep are fluffy. They fall into the water. <laughs> well, you get them out of the water, they're heavy. And they can't get up. Who's got to get them up? Well, the shepherd's got to get them up. And the shepherd takes care of them. And the shepherd anoints their head with oil. Why is that? To keep all these insects and bugs and stuff off of them. And on the nose, he's always taking care of us. Yeah, we're sheep, or like sheep, in the fact that here he uses, Jesus uses this, and again, it's all over the Bible. I'm the good shepherd. Shepherd have sheep. Who's the sheep? We're the sheep. See, again, the devil will use this to insult your intelligence, and again, your integrity. You say, well, what are you, just a sheep? But I'm secure enough in myself, in my manhood, in my intelligence, and other things. Say, yep, I certainly am. I'm a sheep. Goodbye. You don't answer fools in the folly. There are people making fun of the sheep. If you're a man, I mean, biologically, if you're a man. No, I'm no sheep. Why? What are you saying? You don't have enough sense after all these years in Christ to say, I'm a sheep. But inside is the good shepherd. And greater is he that's in me than he's that's in the world. So even if the biggest wolf comes, this sheep can fight and this sheep can bite. Let's look at a few more before we finish. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We just read that. Let's go to the next chapter, John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husband. And you ought to read through this, by the way. You're bearing fruit in the Lord. Everything's been going good. And all of a sudden, everything is not going good. And it's taking patience. 
But what's happening is God is pruning you. And then all of a sudden, you're bigger and stronger than ever. Look at verse 5 in John chapter 15. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him. He's in me, I'm in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. That's spiritually speaking, of course. But without him, you can't build a church. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain, they build it. Eventually it comes to naught. But he is all these things. He is the great I am that we read about in Exodus chapter 3. Back to John chapter 11. I want to read two more to you before we finish today. What I'm trying to share with you is that the great I am that was in the burning bush walked the streets of Galilee, died on a Roman cross, raised himself up from the dead, is alive now, and he's coming again. Even so, come Lord Jesus. John chapter 11. This is just so, so thrilling. Lazarus dies. Jesus said, now let's go to the grave. And Martha is giving him a bit of an interrogation and some suggestions, which we do the same when we pray. Got to have a suggestion on how to work this out. God says, fine, tell me something I don't know. You know the expression? <laughs> That's God. He's God saying, tell me something I don't know. Where did I read this? Oh, I think it was one of the actor-director guys, one of the famous ones. So a newbie comes onto the set. He's the director. I think it was Clint Eastwood. And I said, you know, Clint, maybe we could do it this way. And he's patiently listening. Maybe we could do this, you know, change this. And he says, why don't we just do it my way? What was the end of that? I think God, he's patient with us. He listens to us. And then he says, why don't we just do it my way? Why shouldn't my house be called a house of prayer? And preach the word and all these things. It makes sense to me. So here Martha is questioning him and interrogating him and giving him suggestions. And he says in verse 23, thy brother shall rise again. And I said yesterday, and I want to say it again today, think of the people that we've known just here. But you can go beyond that to other churches where you went, or family members or friends who were born again, and they're in different parts of the world, different parts of the country that have passed on. And they're all going to rise again. Can you imagine that? I mean, what a reunion. Maybe it's been some years, maybe it's been some decades, and maybe it's been some time, and all of a sudden, we're going to be back together again. God is going to put the band back together again going to bring us all together. We're going to see each other again. Thy brother shall rise again. Verse 24, Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day, which is the truth. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I don't just have these mystical cosmic powers that channel through me and it comes from the universe speaking to me. I'm the resurrection. I built the universe. I designed the universe. This is the mystery of godliness the Apostle Paul wrote about, that God was manifest in the flesh. And admittedly, it's deep and mysterious and other things, but it's the truth. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. There's the question. Believest thou? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I'm not sure she knew. She said, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. But that wasn't the question. The question was, do you believe I'm going to go to that tomb and I'm going to bring your brother back up again, which he did, because I'm the resurrection. You see, we have a habit of not answering the question. Do you believe I'm going to do this? Oh, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. Amen. You know, I know my theology. That was not the question. The question is, do you believe that I'm going to raise up Lazarus right now? And he did John chapter 8. 
Eventually, this would be the one that would get him stoned, though there was many, many reasons why they wanted to kill him. Keeping in mind that all that time they were fulfilling the plan of God. There's the mystery. But Jesus is in confrontation with the religious leaders of his time, and he says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Right? So that's an act of faith. Abraham, way back in the book of Genesis, is looking ahead, and you can see by faith the day of the coming of the Savior. Job says the same thing. Isaac, Jacob, David, they see that day, but it's way up in time. In the continuum of time, it's way over here. And now in the continuum of time, Jesus is there. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, meaning before he was born, I am. And we know from reading the text what he was referring to, because it says, Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. In John 8, 58, and the other passages as well, but this really stands out. He is identifying himself with the voice coming out of that burning bush. What is your name? What is your name? I am that I am. And before Abraham was born, before Adam was born, before anyone was born, I am. God became a man, did the works that we know about. So let me say this to you as a practical application. And we use this phrase, right? Growing up, you used this phrase, this phrase. I did. So what's your problem? You got a problem? That's how you learn it in the streets. You got a problem? So I'm asking you respectfully, what's your problem? Oh, Pastor Isaiah. I'd like to trade stories with you, I really would. Just to say, we're all in the pressure cooker. It's like a stew. You're a carrot, and there's peas, and all the steam's coming out. And who's going to say, hey, I'm feeling the stew more than you are? No, I'm not feeling I'm a pea. I'm a carrot. We are all in the pressure cooker. And keep that in mind in talking to one another and dealing with one another so your tone is a bit more, you know. There's no one that's exempt from this pressure we're under right now. We like to project ourselves as, oh, you've got problems. Admittedly, some people have much worse situations that we have. But see, I've never been comforted by somebody who says, you think you have it bad. Look at these poor people over here. And for some reason, if this doesn't take the pain away. For me, it didn't help me. It's like, hey, I'm in pain. Well, he's got worse pain. What does that mean? I'm still in pain. This is how I reasoned it through. And you say, I'm in pain. We are all in pain. We're all in the pressure cooker. We're all stressed. We're all at the tipping point. But then there's God. I am that I am. His great plan. I want you to, as we pray and we finish, I want you to really consider this today. Greater is he. Greater. See, in my life, you don't get the pleasure of hearing all the excuses I hear. Keep in mind that I was the guy that wasn't supposed to make it. And I got it on paper. I got my medical records. But I'm here. How'd I get here? Grace of God? Sure. God gave me an offer. You want to be strong? You want to be free? I said, yeah, I certainly do. Follow me. Amen. And I did. And it worked. So you don't want to go around grousing all the time. Because that's making you more frustrated and more aggravated. What you want to do is accent the promises of God, the truth of God. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Greater. 
I want you to think about that as we pray. We are all up against it. Ah, for me, I guess I'm a little touchy about whining. I've done my fair share of it, that's for sure. I'm a little touchy about that because it says, greater is he, greater is he that is in you, greater than your problems, greater than your thoughts, greater than your imaginations, greater than your weaknesses, greater. I am that I am. In my vision, I've always interpreted the land, the sea, and then the sky above. And it was three times, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God at that time was speaking to me that no matter what you see and what's coming in the future, which that was 30 years ago now, still, I am. I am. Let's ask God to strengthen us today in our faith. These are the days of Elijah. These are the days the prophet spoke about. These are the days. And we're here. We've arrived. You keep in mind this sad, sad truth. Not everyone's going to make it. There are going to be casualties. How do I know? Jesus said so. Ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. Five kept saying, trim into the wicks, lamp, we're good to go. The other one said, ah, it's been a while. Let's take a rest, and that doesn't work out too good. Father, we come before you this day in Jesus' mighty name. And I ask you to remind all of us of the truth. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Satan will continue to use his subtleties, if not just the shock and awe of the things that he could bring up against our lives. But greater is he. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We bless you. We praise you. I ask you to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ, my friends. I ask you to strengthen those that are weak and strengthen those that are struggling. We are all in this stew. No one that I've met yet, at least, is exempt. But greater is he. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Lord, I pray that your people would not let their heart be troubled. And they would not let it be afraid. And that we would keep our eyes on you so that we have an intent, intense focus on you. Then we will have, Isaiah 26, 3, perfect peace. Help us, God, not to be so distracted. Help us to understand these principles, these truths. What is your name and who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. There are no names that can adequately describe my nature. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Hallelujah. Let's stand this morning. Doesn't the scripture say from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. I was reading a verse I didn't give to you. God, as it says in Isaiah, I am the Lord from the rising of the sun, which means the east, to the setting in the west. I am the Lord, and there is none other, and we have him. He has us. Father, this is the day that you have made. Amen. We can, if we choose, we can rejoice and we can be glad in it, because you are the great I am, and we have you in our lives. Touch those that do not, touch those that are not sure, and help them to appreciate the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. This day, God, we give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me this morning? Amen.